Hopefully you remember from last week, our new series that we're in together is on worship, just that, worship. Last week we did our best to answer the question, what is worship, and who can worship, and we answered that in a way that showed us when it comes to who can worship, we all have been created to worship. The problem that lies is the object of our worship. That's where the error normally comes. We can either worship what we are supposed to, or we choose to worship something else. And so today, the question that we want to answer is who is the object of our worship? It's a tough one to tackle because there's no way to cover it all this morning and in a real sense. In fact, our, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at a, a really little part from a really small angle of this question of who is it that we, that we worship. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus 19. That's where we'll find ourselves in a moment, uh, but not right off the bat. But Exodus 19 will be a big passage of Scripture that we read read together this morning. But you might recall we went to this place last week. As we approach this question of who is it that we worship, I want us to go to a very basic spot and to a spot where if you were raised in church at all, in fact, you don't even really need to be raised in church to have heard of this before, is the Ten Commandments. Because in Exodus chapter 20, We are given the Ten Commandments. Remember, Moses is up there on Mount Sinai. The Lord is giving him the law. He gives him these Ten Commandments. And in verses 2 through 3, we have the first one. He says, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, again, so basic. This is such a such a basic thing for us to know and to hear, but yet there is such truth in this, and I think it's hard for us even to live this way, to have no other gods before him. Now, you might remember what just had happened in Israel's history, okay? God has redeemed, that's what's happened, God has redeemed Israel, so he, he freed them from the bondage that Egypt had them in, freed them Uh, from all of their ways, took them out into the wilderness, and now he's giving them this law that they need to live by. He's establishing a covenant with them, saying, listen, Israel, I'm your God, and you are my people. And the first rule is, I'm your God. They came from a land for 400 years that didn't have one God, all kinds of gods. And so this is what they knew. Right, This is the life that they knew. Yes, they still had their oral tradition and they knew that they were Israel, one God, but think about all the kids that were raised hearing about all these other gods, the culture that they were in. And what God wants to establish for them right away, as he redeems them, as he moves them out of this land, he's gonna take them to their own land. He wants them to know, Israel, you are to be a one God nation. And you are going to be the nation of the one true and living God. And so my first rule, the first law is this. I'm the only God. I'm the only God that you will have. I'm the only God that you will worship. I'm the only God that is. And this still carries with us today in the church. We live our life as we talk about worship, as we focus on this. We live our life worshiping the one True God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You might recall last week I read a definition of worship from the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms, and it said, the service of praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and petition directed toward God through actions and attitudes. Christians' worship is Trinitarian in form as praise is offered to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is important. You are only an Orthodox Christian if you believe in the Trinity, if you worship God of Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, Pastor, this is such a weird thing for you to be talking about. There's many today who do not believe this, and they parade her out as Christians. 
They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in Jesus being fully God and fully man. They don't believe in the Holy Spirit as being part of the Godhead. They would argue this. They would stand against this, but yet still call themselves Christians, and that's a problem because they are disobeying the first of the Ten Commandments because our God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we thus worship him that way. That's why I shared this definition of all the definitions I talked about last week because I think it's helpful to remember, right? Christians worship as Trinitarian form as what? As praise offered to God through Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer, our mediator, the one who we go to God through, Jesus Christ, and the only way that we can do it is through the power of the Spirit. That's the only way we can worship God is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're experiencing that this morning. You don't feel it this morning, do you? You know, it really, it's kind of discouraging this morning for me. You remember how I ended service last week? Could you guys just commit to be here? Look around. Not many people here this morning, right? And so for me as a person, as a human, I look around and what happens? I get discouraged. And we're singing these songs. Holy, 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 yeah, I get it. But I'm kind of bummed out. There's not a lot of people here this morning. The only way that I can approach God this morning is not through the power of Tim because the power of Tim sits on that pew with his head down and is discouraged. The only way that I can come and worship God this morning is through the power of the Spirit, trusting in the work of the Spirit to help me to worship God this morning. Remind me of the truths. Remind me of who you are. Help me to reflect on that. Help me to bow my head before that. Help me to worship you today. So, we need to remember that we, we need to understand that we worship God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this leads to the next question. I think it's a fair question. What makes him worthy of our worship? Why him? Why not me? Why not you? Why not something else? And I think this is a valid question because this is the question that people ask as they determine what they are gonna worship. And they might not use that language, but as people approach different things, they say, what makes this worthy of my time? What makes this worthy of my money? What makes this worthy of my effort? And I'm guessing you approach your life in that way. The job you work, what makes it worthy of you? My guess, this is my guess, the paycheck. That's what makes it worthy. Makes it worth going. Now, some of you are questioning that at your own jobs. Like, I don't know if this is worth it. Well, you got to determine that, but you are determining that, aren't you? You're basing it off of something. The activities you allow your kids to be a part of. You think through it and you determine this is a valid thing for them to be a part of, for us to spend our time, our money on. We think this is a good thing. Well, we do this in our worship as well. And what a lot of people do is when they take God, big G, and then they take God, little g, all the other gods that are out there, things that I even just mentioned, money, fame, whatever it might be, they determine in their mind which one is more worthy of my time, my effort, and my resources. Is it the one God that we are supposed to worship and called to worship, or is it these other things? And the fact of the matter is, too often, when we look at those other things, we think, those look a lot nicer. One of the big ones that we worship, and the reason we don't come to worship on Sunday morning, is the softness of our bed. We make the determination, don't we? Don't you determine this? I do every morning. Fine, I'll get up. I don't wanna get up, but I have things to do. Right? And so we are, what we're doing is we're determining what is more important in our life at this moment. And sadly, most of the time, God seems to fall to the wayside. And so what makes him worthy of our worship? And my goal this morning is to show you that the Bible tells us that God alone is worthy of worship. All these other things just fall to the wayside. They're of little value. They're nothing. They burn in the fire they don't stand up to the test. The only one who can be elevated to the position of worship is God alone. The one who said in that first commandment, I alone am your God. You shall have no other gods 
before me. Now, there's numerous ways to go about this. And one of the things that my mind first went to was the attributes of God, of one of which we'll be talking about this morning. But there's a lot of his attributes that we could talk about today. The first one could be his aseity. So what is that? That means his self-existence. God alone is self-existent. The only reason you exist is because your parents exist, right? The only reason they exist because their parents existed. And you can keep going on and on and on in all of creation. The only reason we exist is because we were created. We were given existence. God is not that way. God self-exists. There's always been God. No beginning to him. No end to him. That's hard for us to gather. It's hard for our brains to compute something like that. But that's one of the attributes we could have looked at this morning. Another one could be his sovereignty, his complete rule and reign over everything. We could look at that and focus on that. We could look at his omni-attributes, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, all of which none of us have. The fact that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere all the time. We could look at those attributes and just focus on that and say, well, this is why he's worthy of worship. But I don't want to do that this morning either. We could look at the fact that one of his attributes is truth. At all times and in all ways, God is truthful. Now, that would be an attribute worthy of worship, wouldn't it? Somebody who actually told you the truth all the time, wouldn't that be someone you'd want in your corner? Someone you'd want to actually be your boss? You mean tell me I'm gonna have a boss that's actually gonna tell me the truth all the time? What a beautiful thing to have. But no, we won't look at that either. Or how about his attribute of pure wisdom? Or maybe we could look at the fact that one of his attributes is grace. We're people of grace. It'd be a good thing to look at this morning, or maybe God's goodness. And this morning, as you approach God in worship, which is what we've gathered to do this morning, maybe you should reflect on his goodness to you. Maybe it pops up sometime in your feed on Facebook saying, hey, remember this happened eight years ago. And you're like, oh, I forgot about that. That was, that was a fun time together as a family. That only happened because of the goodness of God. He's given you a family. He's given you resources and finances to be able to do fun things as a family, to be able to care for each other. Maybe we would, we should reflect on his goodness this morning, or maybe we could look at God's wrath this morning and reflect on that and see, well, this is why he's worthy of worship. Or maybe we could look at his attribute of love, the love that he has for you, so much so that he'd send his only son to die for you in your place. Maybe that would make him worthy of worship this morning above all other things. That's what would lead us to maybe thinking about looking at what he's done. Not necessarily just who he is, but what he does as creator, sustainer, redeemer. The only one who's the promise keeper. See, there's a lot of routes that we could go to try to look at who is God and what makes him worthy of our worship. But today, I only want to look at one of his attributes, and that attribute is his holiness. I think this attribute stands out when it comes to our worship. A.W. Tozer has a quote in his book on the attributes of God in his, in his first book. He has two of them. This is his first book. And I've read this before on Sunday evening, but I want to read it again. In approaching the attribute of holiness, A.W. Tozer says, they say that when Leonardo da Vinci painted his famous Last Supper, he had little difficulty with any of it except the faces. Then he painted in the faces in without too much trouble except one. He did not feel himself worthy to paint the face of Jesus. He held off and kept holding off, unwillingly to approach it, but knowing he must. Then in the impulsive carelessness of despair, he just painted it quickly and let it go. He says, there is no use. He said, I cannot paint him. Tozer goes on to say, I feel very much the same way about explaining the holiness of God. I think that the same sense of despair is on my heart. There isn't any use for anybody to try to explain holiness. The greatest speakers on the subject can play their oratorical harps, but it sounds tinny and unreal. And when they are through, you've listened to music, but you still haven't seen God. That's so true. As we try to approach Holiness this morning, I want you to know it's an impossible thing for us to grasp. 
I don't know if I can do justice at all in trying to explain to you what it means that God is holy. But it is the truth of God's word. He tells us that he is holy, and the Bible speaks of it, and I wanna do my best to approach it this morning. So the question would be, how is God holy? The first one, well, there's a few ways. Number one, he's perfect morally. Habakkuk 1, verses 13, the first part of verse 13 says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Talking about God being of purer eyes than to see evil. Can't even, can't even look upon this evil. The Bible speaks of God as being perfectly moral. There's no sin in him. There's no evil in him whatsoever. And again, this is something that we cannot comprehend because we live in a world of sin. Our natural nature is pointed towards sin. It's all we know. It's what we do. So to think of something or somebody or some being as being perfectly moral is just as impossible as thinking of somebody who's always existed. (laughs) I can't comprehend that. It goes to the end of my mind. You're telling me God has always been around? Yes. What? How? When I walk on this earth and I see a rock, it it hasn't always been here. It's it's existed. That's, That's what we do with science. We try to figure these things out. You're trying to tell me that he's perfectly holy? Never a bad thought. Never a bad feeling. Never a wrong word. Never a bad action. No, the Bible's very clear that God is holy, perfectly moral in all his ways. And not just that, he's completely separated from unrighteousness. In Psalm chapter five, verse four, it says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You know that song that we sang as the deer? It's a good song. But as we were singing that song, you know, think of it, not only are you God, but you're my father, and there's like this loving connection there. There's something though that we have to remember. We are There is a separation of man from God because of sin. He he is so other than us because of his perfection and holiness that there there is a separation and we have to be very careful in our language with people who have not been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and talking about God as father in relation to them because there is still a huge gulf, a huge chasm that they cannot cross because they are sinners and he is holy. And there needs to be an understanding of that. And you and I this morning, even as Christians, still feel that, don't we? Even though we know that the blood of Christ has saved us, we know that God has brought us in and he is our father and that he does love us, there still is this sense to when we walk in this room together to worship of this understanding of there is something different about God than me. I can't attain to these things that he is. And the fact is, in God's holiness, perfectly moral, separated from unrighteousness, this has always been the case. He does not get holier. He does not get less holy. This is one of the problems with the big movement of some pretty important names in Christianity who've decided to get rid of the Old Testament because that God doesn't seem to be very holy. He seems to be pretty mean and ruthless. And as New Testament Christians, we don't really need that God anymore, as if God attained some sort of holier-than-thou status after the Old Testament. No. He has always been holy and always will be holy. How do we see this in Scripture? Well, we go to what Pastor Scott read this morning. First, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. I'll read it again. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, With two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This coupled with Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, 
You remember John is taken up, seeing this vision. And John says, when I saw him, this being Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Whenever we see the holiness of God in scripture being being shown or revealed in some way, it's interesting the response of the person in the presence of God's holiness. You might have come this morning saying, you know what I really want from church this morning? I want some sort of experience from the Holy Spirit. You know, I just, I just, I just need something this morning, you know? I look at Walter. Mother passed away this morning. He's here this morning. If anybody else in here could say that, it'd be Walter this morning. God, I need, I need something this morning, right? And that could be true. But the fact is, if we were to approach God this morning and in this place, God gave us an experience of his holiness, do you know what our response would be? Fall down as dead men, each of us. Because at that moment, we would realize how sinful we really are. It wouldn't be like, a, oh, daddy's here. It'd be like, oh, no, daddy's here. Dead. Because at that moment, we would understand, really grasp the separatedness between him and me. I don't deserve to be here. I shouldn't be able to look upon this. I am not you. I should not be here. I should die. That's what I deserve. That's what I deserve in the midst of this. And there's a sense of that, that when we walk in this room to worship every Sunday, there should be a sense of understanding that and realizing that. It seems as if every time we see the holiness of God in Scripture, it's a scary thing to behold, not a cuddly like a teddy bear thing to behold. It's not like a security blanket of, but I got God. Oh, no. It's a scary thing to behold because of us as sinners. We're so separated. That's why I told you to turn to Exodus 19. I want you to look with me at Exodus 19. This obviously is right before Exodus 20 where we have the Ten Commandments. God leads Israel out of Egypt, and he's taking them to Mount Sinai. And here at Mount Sinai, God is going to allow the people to see his holiness. And I want you to see the scene. I want you to grasp what's going on here. I want you to feel what's happening in this moment. It says, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set up from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came, and he called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And may also believe you forever. This is a crazy scene. Moses, go tell the people I'm about to, they're about to see me. I want them to know this is who I am. And so these are the parameters that he sets up. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. I think this is a fascinating chapter to read when it comes to the holiness of God because again, I think too often when we think of the holiness of God, we think of, we think of like the harp playing. We think of like basking in this presence with our hands up. Oh, you're just so holy. Just, just rain it down on me. But yet the picture that we have in scripture is if you even dare to come near this mountain, I'm gonna kill you. You, you can't touch me. You can't approach me. You are sinners, and I am not. I, I can't even look upon the evil. So don't come near the mountain. Limits had to be set. Yes, God was gonna show himself to the people, but it wasn't in a beautiful way. It's with earthquakes, the mountain shaking, lightning and thunder and loud trumpet blasts, and Moses bringing the people out to this mountain and saying, don't go near him. He's so different than you. And if you approach him in an unworthy manner and you touch what he says not to touch, listen, just like Eve, you, you will die. This is the picture that we are painted with the holiness of God. And I think a question that is fair is, why would the Bible display God's holiness in such a frightening way? Why wouldn't God talk about his holiness as a way that's just beauty? Something great to behold. The reason for that is because when we understand God's holiness... Just like with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, God's holiness reveals to us our depravity and despair. Being separated from God is not a pretty thing. God being holy and me not is not something that is beautiful for me to look at. No, it's heart-wrenching. It's utter hopelessness. It's death. Because whether we want to think about it, you and I are full of sin. And so what does this mean for us as we approach this holy God who we are called to worship? We obviously realize that we are not holy and that there's a problem. I can't approach the mountain. I can't get to God. I can't go to Mount Sinai. Why? Because I'm a sinner and I will die. I will be killed as a sinner. And so I cannot be with God in my sin. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem is, too often with many people walking around this earth today, we think way too little about our sin. And we don't take it seriously. In fact, even as Christians, oftentimes we will joke about our sin. But sin is no laughing matter. It's what separates us from our God. You know, in our services, when Pastor Spencer comes up, this is usually his part of the service, we try to do some scripture that has to do with confession, salvation, redemption, something about sin and God redeeming us from our sin. And you could label that if you wanted to as a time of confession in our service, which sounds odd probably to many of us Baptists. But there's a reason that we do that in our service is because we think it's important for us to dwell on our sin even as Christians, to reflect on how you lived this week and to remember this. You've come here to worship a holy God this week. Have you been holy? Have you honored him with your talk? Have you honored him with your time? Have you honored him with your actions? Have you lived in a way of understanding that as a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you and is with you at all times. Is that kind of frightening to how you live this week? God saw you. God knows you. Every thought, every attitude, 
every inkling. God has been right there recording every single one down. Now, as you approach him in worship this morning, do you feel that before you worship him, there should be a time when you lay before him and say, God, I need to tell you some things. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for this. Is there any way that I could still approach you and worship this morning? Is there any way in my sickness and in my despair that you would allow me to approach you with these other people, to sing a song to you, to give money to you, to hear from you? Again, as Christians, I think we deal with our sin a little too, uh, I don't know, easy. We have to remember that though we've been saved by grace through faith, we still sin, we still fall short, we still walk into this room dirty and stained. We still live in a world that's completely sinful. As we go to work, as we live in our families, we are surrounded by sin day in and day out. And it's something that we do need to think about and understand and realize. It's important for us as Christians not to just confess our sin on Sunday, but to confess our sins every day. I had a lot of friends in high school. They would party pretty good. And they would tell me when I would, I would go to these parties once in a great while, they wouldn't know what they were saying. But they would tell me it's okay because tomorrow I will confess and I'm good. That's such a lazy approach to sin. It's what Paul had to deal with in Romans chapter six. Should I keep on sinning so that grace can abound? By no means. By no means do we sin knowingly, knowing that we have a father that will forgive us. I don't sin just because of that. I have a father who's holy and I know that. So I need to deal with sin. But there are these reminders in scripture. Lamentations chapter three, verse 22 tells us this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. This verse this is why you and I can gather in this room this morning and not be burnt, not be struck down. It's because we serve a God whose mercies never end. And as Christians, more than anybody else in this world, we understand this great mercy, don't we? We know the word, yet we still fall short. But what makes worship so great of our God is that when we walk into this room stained and full of sin that we struggled with this week, we do have the promise and we do know that when I truly confess my sin to him, my father is there to say, Tim, you are forgiven because of the blood of Christ. You're forgiven. I love you in the midst of your despair. I love you in the midst of your struggles and in your sins. And in fact, I have paid the price for it through my son, Jesus. Ephesians chapter two talks all about this, how God has made a way for us being sinners to be able to approach him in worship. This is your dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we can't walk around this world acting all cocky. 
<laughs> looking at all these unholy people saying, look at you guys in your little sin. You're so separated from God. God, you're so, you're so ignorant. Look at me. Look at me. We, we can't do that because of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That says very clearly, for by grace you've been saved, not because of works so that you go around boasting about who you are. No, it's the work of God so that no one can boast. The only reason that you and I get together in here for worship this morning is because of the great grace of our God. The great grace of our holy God. The fact that he didn't kill us. The fact that he didn't destroy us before we ever heard about Jesus. It's all because of him and his goodness to us. And so we walk into these rooms, this room this morning, ready to worship him, understanding that. God, I can approach you because, because of you. I'm so different than you. I'm a sinner, but you are holy, but yet you've made a way for me to be able to worship you, and it's, it's your way, the blood of Christ. And I worship you today in that and because of him. So we ask this question, what does this mean for our life then? This holiness of God, the work that he's done in order to allow us to be saved by him, what, what does this mean then for us? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 to 29, it says something about worship that we'll, we'll look at more in the weeks ahead. But the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, there's some important parts in here that we'll learn over the next few weeks. But notice what type of worship it says to do. Acceptable worship. So that means there is unacceptable worship. We can't just go all willy-nilly with it. When you want to worship God, you can't just run up to the mountain and touch it. Remember, there was a rule. You die if you touch the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. So there are rules to worship. There are ways in which to worship. And it says that we are to worship God, first of all, with reverence. This is something we do with our actions, is it not? This is something that we show to God. We revere him. We honor him. We understand who he is. I think that's something missing today. We don't honor our authorities. You know what I mean? We don't. We decide which authorities we'll honor. Title don't mean anything anymore. Oh, you're the president? I don't care. I don't like you. You're the mayor. You're my teacher. You're my mom. You're my dad. You're my aunt. You're my uncle. I don't like you. No reverence. It's something we need to get back to. We need to revere our God and treat him as the one who is holy and him alone is holy. But also, not just in reverence, but reverence and awe. This awe is something that we feel, is it not? We must fight for this every day because I struggle with this feeling stuff. And so I need to be reminded every day of who God is and what he has done. This holiness stuff needs to be on my mind and I need to just be in, in awe of him each and every moment. But then it also has to be worship that's acceptable. Acceptable worship. And so what does this mean? Well, last week we talked about general worship and we talked about specific worship. In our general, general worship, just us living our life for God as we are called to do, the Bible says something very specific. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I want you to listen to this command. Brothers and sisters, we live in grace. We've been saved by God's grace. It's not of works. I've already read this. But that does not allow you to push aside this commandment that God gives us here. Christian, live holy lives. Live a life separated from sin. Rid yourself of it. Do not take it lightly. Really treat it seriously. 
Act like it's a big deal, because it is. You are called to be holy. In John 15, the vines and the branches, Jesus says, by bearing fruit, you prove. By bearing fruit, you prove that you are in the vine. I wonder how many of us, our life this week, what did it prove? I think about that when I go to my kids' sporting events. And that poor umpire, that poor referee who's taken everything from me. I'm horrible at basketball games. I, I don't want you to ever come to a basketball game with me, any of you. You'll think so different of me. I promise you, I just can't help it. I just can't help it, right? But it's horrible. It's embarrassing. It's sinful. This guy who probably worked 10 hours today doesn't want to be here. He's hearing all this garbage. And I'm like, are you blind? He's like, kind of, I have glasses on. Could you not see it? And he's like, I'm 70 years old. I could barely get there. No, I didn't see it. I'm just angry and frustrated and over something that doesn't matter. But that sin just comes out. And I wonder what it proves to everybody around me who's sitting by me. Look at Pastor Tim go. I think it's okay if we do it. That must be an okay thing to do. He's doing it. What I prove? So I say that about my life, but I'd have to think you guys have stuff in your life too. And I do wonder if I live this out well of what Peter says, be holy because I'm holy and you are my children. I am your father. I am the vine. You are the branches. You bear the fruit, my fruit. My fruit is holiness. So be holy. Live holy lives and people will see the holiness that you're living in and it'll point them to me and you will tell them about me. And by the way, when you live a life that's not very holy, repent of that sin and I will forgive you of your sin. I will continue to love you. I will continue to be your father. I will continue to bless you. Live holy. I wonder how serious we take this. This is our general worship. But how serious do we take that when we gather together here this morning in our specific worship? Do we gather together this morning to worship him in a way that is honoring to him on his terms? And that's what I think is so important. Do we gather this morning to worship God on his terms? You see, if some famous athlete I'm gonna go with basketball because that's what I like. Asked me and was like, hey, Tim, do you wanna come and play, play a game with us? Yeah, let's do it. I'd be like in awe. I'd be like, I've, re I've revered you for a long time. I had your poster. I watched your games. I paid hundreds of dollars to see you play. And you're asking me to come play with you? Huh, I'm in awe. Like this is, this is just phenomenal. Let's do it. The last thing I would do is this. All right, give me the ball. We're playing to seven. We're not playing twos and ones because I don't like that. We're just playing ones this morning. All right, and it's not make it, take it because I don't like that rule. Let's go, give me the ball. I'm up first. I would not do that. I'd be like, sir, how are we playing? What are the rules? Do I get to play or should I sit over there? No, you can play. What ball are we using? I mean, I would do everything that they said because of who they are. Yet too often when I walk into this room, I say, God, listen, I had a tough week. I don't wanna sing this morning. I'm not too interested in closing my eyes to pray because I might fall asleep, I'm pretty tired. So I'm gonna look forward and I need the sermon to be pretty short. I'm kinda hungry. And I got a lot of things to do this afternoon and I hear it's supposed to rain. I was supposed to mow my grass this morning. I need this to go quick, but you're welcome that I'm here. I know we can laugh at that, but some of us walked in like that this morning. Is that the right way that we approach worship?
Think about who we gathered together this morning to worship. It wasn't Michael Jordan. It wasn't LeBron James. I'd say one of the Detroit Lions, but I don't know any of them because they all stink. Same with the Tigers. I'd name one of them, but they stink too. We're not coming together this morning to worship some man, some material, some created being, something that we can grasp and hold and determine its value and its worth. This morning as a church, we have the privilege and the honor to gather together in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to lift our voices in praise to the only one that has ever really been holy. And for some reason, he's allowed you to be a part of his family. For some reason, he has bestowed upon you as one saved in the blood of Christ, holiness and righteousness in his name. So that when you approach him for worship, God in all of your sins sees the perfection of Christ and accepts your worship to him. And so we must do that the way he's called us to do it. And we need to do our best to honor him in our worship, in our life out there, but also in our life together in here as we worship specifically, publicly. I don't really know how to end this sermon. Whenever I approach the holiness of God, I don't like it. I never fail to do, I always fail to do it justice. I always fall short. But I hope this morning you'll respond to the word of God how you should. Some of you, just to be frank, you really need to repent of some sin in your life. And I don't just mean just blub it to him a little bit. I mean, do some things about it. There's things in your life you need to get rid of. There's schedules in your life and in your family's life you really need to change. There's some really serious things that you need to deal with. And you can walk out of this room this morning and not deal with them again and again and again. You have that prerogative. You can do that. But know this. You're not worshiping God then acceptably. Because as Christians, people saved by God's grace, sin is not a laughing matter. And we need to root it out of our life. We need to allow him to deal with it. And so some of you, to, re to respond to God's word appropriate this morning, as we sing this song, as I pray, it'll be a time of confession for you. I don't wanna hear it. Don't come to me and tell me. You need to speak to God. And you need to confess some sin. You need to ask him for the power to change some things in your life. And then you might need to talk to your spouse. You might need to talk to your kids. You might need to talk to your parents. You might need to talk to a friend and say, I need your help with this. I've been struggling with this. And I don't wanna live this way anymore. For some of you this morning, the way you respond to God is you need to fall on your face before him, accepting his salvation. You've never sought forgiveness of your sin before. You've never trusted in Jesus and the forgiveness that he's provided. And this morning, God is nudging you that way, saying, this is for you. I love you. Jesus died for you, and you are mine. You need to confess that to him this morning. I don't know how that's gonna be done, but I trust that you'll respond to God's word as I pray, as we sing in a moment. So let's bow together. Let's do that. God, I... First, to seek forgiveness of failures in preaching, I'm sure. I don't know how to preach on your holiness well <clears throat> to help us to try to see what that means because, God, I'm a, I'm a sinner, and as I stand here, I, I couldn't feel more hypocritical in a message, I think, than right now. Because, God, as I'm speaking, I mean, the things that pop in my head of, Tim, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this and you need to deal with this. Who are you to tell everybody their problems? So God, I ask that you would help me personally with those things, but God, I pray for each person in here that you would help them to see your holiness and in light of that, be willing to repent of their unholiness, to seek forgiveness of their sins, to approach you in a manner that is worthy God, as we look at this topic of worship, 
God, I hope that we realize that we need to do it within your confines, with how you have set us up to do it in our life, outside of these walls, but also together as a church inside these walls. You've set the rules, you've set the play, you've set it all up. So who are we to try to change that? God, we, we have a desire to be faithful followers of you, and so help us to be faithful. That doesn't mean fancy followers. It doesn't mean creative followers. All other words that we could attach to it. God, above all things, we want to be faithful followers because you are the Holy One and we are not. And so God, help us in our life to worship you in a way that is with reverence and awe. I pray that that wouldn't leave us. God, help us to be holy. Help us to live a life where we can conquer sin in our life. But God, I, I know that we're never gonna be perfect on that until we see Jesus. And God, I'm so thankful that you continue again and again to be steadfast in love, in patience, and in mercy. God, I'm thankful that this morning when one of your loved ones comes to your throne and prays and seeks forgiveness of sin, that you, once again, will forgive them of their sin because of the blood of Christ. That your mercy is still there, open and overflowing. That your love for them has never ceased, it's never went down, it's the same as it always will be. A perfect love. And so God, for those Christians this morning struggling in sin and repenting of sin and and feeling guilt and shame, I pray that you would work them through that this morning to help them see that they have been forgiven and that you love them and that you've given them an inheritance found in Christ. God, this morning as we sing this song, help us to worship you well. We ask in Jesus' name.